Today's word comes from Luke chapter 2. If you would turn there with me and follow as we read. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, every one into his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, unto Judea, unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And so it was that while they were there, the days were accomplished that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. The angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels were gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds said one to another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem, and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known unto us. And they came with haste, and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. And when they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things in her, kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told unto them. And when the eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. May God bless his word. In our first service this morning, we reviewed a few of the promises of the Old Testament prophets that the Lord's Messiah would someday enter into the world. Isaiah was far from alone in relaying this message from God. For example, God had spoken to Adam and Eve all the way back in Genesis, promising that there would be, quote, a seed of the woman who would come and crush Satan. To call him the, the seed of the woman was strange, given that every genealogy in the Bible traces generations from father to son. But this promised Savior would be the Son of God. He would have no earthly father. The virgin birth of Jesus was, at the very least, implied all the way back in the uh, early chapters of Genesis to the earliest parents, Adam and Eve. Every promise of God revealed more about the plan of God 
Even in the same days as Isaiah, which we talked about uh, this morning, God spoke through another prophet named Micah to prophesy his plan for the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 2 says, but, uh, but you, Bethlehem Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from old, from everlasting. So Isaiah called him the everlasting father. Micah calls the Messiah the, the ruler of Israel, whose origins are eternal. And he would be born in this tiny village of Bethlehem, a village so small it's hardly worth noting to the, in the list of communities in Judah. It's one distinction is it was the hometown of a, a shepherd boy named David who later grew up to be king. And yet in God's greater story, the good shepherd, the king of kings would be born there. When the angels come to tell the young unmarried virgin girl that she would miraculously give birth to the Messiah, <laughs> the angel appears like it, maybe it missed the mark, right? Bethlehem is, is all the way down in the most southern region of Israel and the angel visits this girl who was up in the most northern region of Israel in the city of Nazareth. For our text this morning, in Isaiah, you have to fast forward about 700 years to get to Luke chapter 2, which Jim just read the first 21 verses of. And it shows how God, working in his sovereign providence, brought his promises to pass. And so, when we look at Luke chapter 2, the first verses set the scene for the remainder of the, the text. Verses one through seven are sort of scene-setting verses. Luke's already told us as he opens this gospel back in chapter one that he is writing to a man named Theophilus so that he would know from eyewitness accounts that the life and ministry of Jesus uh, happened in the way that he's been told it happened in order to have, those, have confidence, Luke says, quote, of those things which are most surely believed among us. It's evident that one of Luke's goals is to try to set a time frame for events when he can. So look, for example, at Luke chapter 3, the first two verses of Luke chapter 3, Luke sets a time frame. He says, now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of Etruria, and the region of Trachonitis, and Lysanias, the Tetrarch of Abilene, Annas and Caiaphas being high priests, right? Listing all of those leaders in power is a time-setting technique. And he does the same thing in Luke chapter 2 to set a time frame for the birth of Jesus, since we know Back in chapter 2, from verses 1 and 2, when the reign of Caesar Augustus happened in verse 1, and Quirinius was governor in verse 2, as, as well as the impact of another leader, Herod the Great, which, which Matthew tells us about in his gospel, the year for Jesus' birth is likely 5 BC, as we think of it. And throughout the Roman Empire, Luke says, there's been this great census that has been decreed in the land of the Jews, which are, which are notorious 
in their keeping of genealogical records, Roman officials wisely opted, instead of counting the Jewish people wherever they lived, they demanded everyone enrolls in the census based on their family heritage, right? You have to go enroll into the census based on where it is you belong in Jewish history. And so this young couple, Mary and Joseph, they live far up north in Nazareth, but their family heritage belongs in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now I say that they're a couple. They're not yet married. Luke is very clear about that. Matthew's gospel is also very clear about that. You'll note in verse five, it says that Mary is Joseph's espoused wife. That's something like engagement in our society, but not exactly the same. It's more binding. This espousal was a legal covenant. It could only be broken through an actual divorce. They're legally committed to one another under the law, a fact that's going to prove important in the story of Jesus' birth. Before they were married, while they were promised to one another, Mary and Joseph were each visited separately by an angel of the Lord, declaring to Mary that though she was a virgin, she would give birth to the promised Messiah. You can look back at chapter 1, verse 31. Mary was told, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. That is the name in Hebrew, Yeshua. It means Yahweh is salvation. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest and the Lord God shall give to him the throne of his father's David, father David. In, in Matthew's gospel, it records how Joseph found out that Mary was pregnant and not yet knowing that a miracle had taken place, he assumed that she had been unfaithful. And yet in kindness, he was considering putting her away privately, breaking off that espousal by divorcing her privately without embarrassing her. And yet the angel came to Joseph and the angel said to Joseph, fear not to take unto you married wife. For that which is conceived of her is of the Holy Spirit and she shall bring forth a son and you will call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. God's many promises must be fulfilled. And when the time was right, God began to move. And so Luke is describing for us in chapter 2 that over in Rome, there is this powerful king who had assumed the title of the August Caesar, Caesar Augustus. Although at one time in his life, he was Julius Caesar's sniveling little nephew named Octavian. Now he is the August Caesar. A man influential enough that we, now 2,000 years later, still have an entire month on our calendar named after him. He presumed to have power over the known world, but his heart is in the Lord's hands and God will turn it whatever way that he wills. And so Augustus woke up one morning with his heart and mind moved by the determinate counsel of God. And he says to himself, well, for some reason I'm thinking maybe a census sounds like a good idea. He didn't intend to fulfill the prophetic words of Isaiah or Micah, he didn't even know those words. His mind was not thinking that some, in some backwater town on the edge of his empire, there's a child about to be born in the wrong place. 
The most powerful ruler is nothing but a pawn for God to use for his own wishes. For Mary and Joseph, perhaps because they knew something of God's plan, they saw his providence at work. But there's something that happens in the text that we can't readily explain here. As a man, Joseph would have been required to register in this census in the city of Bethlehem. Mary was surely not required by law to do that. And yet she goes with Joseph. And we cannot say with certainty why they made this choice. Perhaps it is a certain amount of dedication to one another, an affection that even though they weren't yet married, they understood that by the decree of God, their, their life really was committed to one another to share a common fate. Perhaps they had time to consider what the Old Testament had promised about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem and saw this as an open door for them to, to move forward in God's plan. Perhaps leaving Mary behind when she was about to give birth would have signaled to the rest of Nazareth that Joseph had chosen to abandon her. I mean, when you think about it, Mary would have had plenty of reason to want to get out of the town gossip mill. And they don't come back for at least a few years. Something made this young woman, nearly nine months pregnant, decide that an 80 to 90 mile an hour trip uphill into the mountains of Judea was a good idea. You'll note in verse four, it says they went up from Galilee. That doesn't mean they went north. We use the term up that way, like we went up to Chicago. Well, we say that because it's north, but they're using it in a different way. Galilee Nazareth in Galilee was at roughly sea level, but about 80 to 90 miles away to the south, the city of Bethlehem is about 2,500 feet above sea level. It's not an easy trip to go up that way. The common image of Joseph leading Mary along on a donkey is speculative at best. It's possible, it's just as likely that they walked the entire way. And the tedious trip, when they get to the end of it, it seems to end with an unwelcome arrival. This young couple finds no hospitality in Bethlehem. Luke says in verse 7, there was no room for them at the end. They didn't have the option to, to book themselves a place to stay on Travelocity or Priceline. It's, it's possible that there was an actual inn there, the way we think of it, and they were refused entrance. Although the word here also means guest room. Understand, both Mary and Joseph would have had relatives in this area, but none of them had received an angelic visitor proclaiming the miraculous virgin conception of, of Jesus. They, they, they might have had the understandable assumption that here's this couple and, and they've acted incorrectly and so denied them hospitality. What we do know for sure is that the birth of Jesus was no, it's no glorious event from the human perspective. Either in a connected barn or in a cave used as a stable or, or maybe even just in the open air, back behind the house, Mary gives birth to Jesus. And as was custom, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, strips of cloth in order to to hold him tight and, and make him more comfortable. They thought that these clothes would, would make the limbs of the child grow straight. 
And with nowhere else to place him, she lays him in a manger, a, a food trough for animals. This is the account of the birth of Jesus in its simplest form. Luke offers this pure telling of the nativity of the Savior, and it's unadulterated by human hands and centuries of vain practices. What immediately follows through the rest of the text, verses 8 through 20, is the original celebration of the birth of Jesus. As unremarkable as the birth of Jesus appeared from a human perspective, the incarnation of God in the flesh is not going to happen silently. It is not going to go without being celebrated. Because that infant in the feed trough is the creator God himself. He is born as the, the heavenly son of his earthly mother. He is the earthly son of his heavenly father. He's the promised Messiah. He is the eternal word made flesh, dwelling among us, robed in humanity. The creator God condescends to live with his creatures. And that glorious event is not going to pass by without fanfare. And yet God in his infinite wisdom and grace did not announce the birth of his son to the politically strong or the religious elite. He didn't proclaim it to the Sanhedrin council gathered together at the temple. Listen, I hope you understand that God is strong enough, he is powerful enough that had he wanted to, he could have dragged the august Caesar from his palace in Rome and put him and Governor Quirinius and Herod the Great on their knees in front of that manger. God could have done that. But instead, he sent heavenly messengers to some nameless shepherds outworking the night shift. Verse 8, there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You will find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Shepherds were considered the lowest rung on the social structure of Jewish life. They were uneducated, unsophisticated. They're out there with the animals. They're known to smell like the animals. They're, they're expecting a night, just like every other night. They probably would have split up their individual flocks by day and then at night they would have gathered them together as a community of shepherds into a, what they would call a sheepfold. Safety in numbers. They'd have to keep their eyes peeled watching for potential predators as they care for the sheep. These sheep were probably meant ultimately to be sacrificial sheep at the nearby temple in Jerusalem. But on this night, an angel dispatched from heaven descends over their meadows and it is surrounded by the shining glory of the Lord himself, telling them that the true lamb of God, the real sacrifice for the temple has been born. And their reaction, 
The shepherd's reaction is not glee. The shepherd's reaction is absolute terror. They were sore afraid, verse 9 says. Literally, that reads, they feared with great fear. They were terribly frightened. Because this angel arrives and the glory of God shines, they're they're suddenly struck with the realities of the living God. They, They may have been preparing to meet their end. Certainly God didn't owe mercy to them or to you or to me. And yet the blessed words from the angel is immediately, do not fear, don't be afraid. Why not? Because this is not a message coming of your sure destruction. This is a message coming of God's salvation. The angel says, I bring you good tidings. Those words, good tidings, the good news, the Greek word euanglion, it's, it's the word for gospel. There is good news today that will bring great joy to all kinds of people, even smelly shepherds out in the field. The good news is that unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Just to unpack those for a second. Each of those titles defines the person and work of Jesus. He is born in the city of David. This is the son of David who was promised in the Old Testament. He is Savior. The title is related to his name, right? The name Jesus is actually the Hebrew name Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. He's a savior. He's a deliverer. He is a a rescuer of those who were in great peril. And all people are in great danger. These shepherds experiencing an angel of the Lord and the shining glory of God around them understand they're in great danger. But the good news of great joy delivered to all people is that Jesus is savior. He is Christ. That is the New Testament word that's the equivalent of the Old Testament term, Messiah. He's the anointed one. He's that Messiah who was promised to Eve and assured to Abraham and declared to David and proclaimed through the prophets. The promises of an anointed one, a Messiah of God, the Christ of God in the Old Testament. Number in their hundreds. It's not just in Isaiah and in Micah, many others. And each finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus, who is the Christ, the anointed. And the angel also says he's Lord. That's his divine position. The word Lord means master, ruler, sovereign. He is Lord because all power, that is all ability and all authority, is given to him. The angels declare on this night the birth of the Lord to whom every knee in heaven and earth will ultimately bow. This child is God himself. The angels could have come and looked at the shepherds and said, look, He is born this day, but we have been serving him for thousands of years now. Listen, this is good news for you. Look at verse 11 again. Hear the angel's words. Unto you is born this day uh, in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This is for you. You have a desperate need to know him for who he is. This perfect Blessed infant is not going to remain in the manger forever. 
Whereas you have lived a life of sin, he lives a life in perfect submission to God. Though you deserve death and hell for your rebellion against the holy God, he came to step in the place of sinners and through his death and resurrection give eternal life, salvation for all who believe. Listen, what is it that makes you think that this is an event worth celebrating? So many countless millions uh, huddled together today, presumably in commemoration of this event, but if they don't know him as Savior and Christ and Lord, what are they celebrating? The common theme nowadays says, well, that's what Christmas is all about. The problem is, well, what's that? What are you going to fill in the blank with there? Oh, it's about time with family and friends. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about decorating and putting up lights. That's what Christmas is all about. It's about being kind and generous to strangers. It's about delighting your children and exchanging gifts. It's it's about the feelings of nostalgia you get when you engage in your family's traditional celebrations. Unfortunately, all of that seems to be now what it's all about. But should we find cause for celebration that Christ is the Lord and Savior? That God himself was made flesh, he humbled himself to enter into this dark world amidst what appeared on the outside to be a scandal, born in the dirt, laid in a food trough, ignored by the world so it took an angelic army of heaven to move simple shepherds to come seek him and praise him. The good news proclaimed by the angel is that you can know Jesus as Savior, as Christ, and as Lord. The shepherds that night, quaking and and quivering in fear at the presence of, according to verse 9, a single angel under the brilliant intensity of God's glory, they already knew enough to be afraid of that one. They were no match for him. Yet this angel has not come to destroy. This angel is to come to declare the good news and praise God, and yet he's not going to do it alone. Picture this, verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. If the sight of a single angelic being was enough to cause these shepherds to cower in fear. What must it have been like when their meadow is soon surrounded by a multitude of the heavenly host? Can I remind you that that word host is actually a biblical term that's a military term? It means army? In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, We understand God is the Lord of hosts. He is the the God of angel armies. He's invincible, right? His, His sovereignty is unassailable. And yet even these angel armies come to praise the infant Jesus because they know him to be Lord. They they march at his command. They always have and they always will. Look, if you want examples of that later on in the Gospels, right, is Jesus's about to be crucified, Peter thinks he's going to rescue Jesus from arrest, right? And you remember Jesus said to him, you know, I, I, could, I could call on 12 legions of angels 
But then how would the scripture be fulfilled? Right? These angels that are singing at his birth, they were under his commands when it was time for his death. And they'll continue to be under his command. This, this child who's born into the world to go to the cross so that these angels were there at his birth and they're under his command if he wants them at his death. The day's coming when Jesus is going to return to this earth and the description according to Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1 is the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire taking vengeance on them that don't know God. If he is not Savior and Christ and Lord to you, then frankly, his birth is not something for you to celebrate. His birth is something for you to quiver in fear about. You're attempting to rejoice in the birth of the Lord who's coming back at the head of an angelic army to deal retribution to people who reject him and refuse to obey the gospel. The world's going to have no defense or excuse for we clearly see, or see here, there is this offer of peace that's been made. God, the Son, was born into the world to purchase peace for sinners. And this army of angelic warriors marching at his command came on the night of his birth, surrounded the hill country of Jerusalem, and yet instead of drawing their swords of vengeance, all they did was drew their breath in song to say glory to God in the highest, on earth peace, goodwill toward men. What a remarkable God we have who sends an army in order to declare peace. These angels harmonize and like this multi-directional song, right? Above there's glory, there's, there's grandeur, there's splendor, there's this perfect magnificence. God is above, he's in the highest, he deserves all glory. And yet this transcendent God who is in the highest and deserves all glory manifests his glory to those who are far below him. And so above there's glory and below on earth there's peace because the Prince of Peace has been born and he can be found in a stable with a couple of teenage nobodies, his little body wrapped in strips of cloth, laying in a dirty feed trough. And so the shepherds are meant to seek him. Sorry to squash our well-ingrained ideas, but the wise men were led to him by a star probably a couple of years later. The shepherds were not led to him by a star. They were told to go seek him because they're told, you'll know you have found him when you see this almost unimaginable sign. A baby swaddled and laying in a feed trough. The angel told them in verse 12, how to identify the right child, right? He's going to be in swaddling clothes, laying in a manger. And so verse 15 says, it came to pass as the angels were gone away from them into heaven. The shepherds said to one another, let us go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Right, because of the glory, because of the angel army, because of this gospel proclamation, because, as, as they say, the Lord has made this known to us. They didn't delay. They came seeking Jesus. They said, let us go now 
to Bethlehem. That now is a, is a word of emphasis. We'd say, let us go straight. Let us go right away to Bethlehem. There's nothing, there's nothing they've got going on that's as important as this. Everything else is put aside, right? They're not going to go on a tour of pretty lights or seek out a sale at Walmart. None of that compares. They want to find Jesus. And you'll see this clearly in the next verse, verse 16. They came with haste. They did not delay. The object of their interest, what they were looking for, was not immediately obvious to them. It says they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. The word for found there in Greek, it indicates essentially the, the completion of a search. They, they came to Jerusalem, I'm sorry, they came to Bethlehem and they, they, they scoured the village looking for him. There was a search underway and they, they didn't find him where people would have expected. When the wise men finally do come much later, they come asking where is the one who is born the king of the Jews? And when they come asking, they come to the palace asking because that's naturally the place to search for a king. But the shepherds know better. They go through the dark streets of Bethlehem as they wander, maybe asking here and there the, the few residents that are awake if anybody knows of a child that was just born. I mean, you can picture them like going through the alleys and looking in backyards and animal pens and caves and, and somewhere in that dark night, they found Joseph and Mary and they find this baby swaddled in a manger. Such an unlikely scene. The Savior, the Christ, the Lord in a manger. I dare say every one of us in this room had better than he did. Look, there's a, there's a picture there of a spiritual reality. The, the son of God who has, has dwelt in eternity past with God, as God, willingly let go of that glory and assumed the most inglorious of circumstances. And yet that's God in the flesh. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promise of a child to be born, known as, or having the reputation as, Emmanuel, God with us. That old Methodist Charles Wesley was right when he wrote, Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel, he's God with us. I cannot tell you how it can be that the very creator who spoke this universe into existence would willingly stoop so low, humble himself so far as to be swaddled, entirely immobilized. Or how these shepherds who, who quaked in fear at the presence of a single being of his creation would later find themselves you know, hovering sort of ominously over the food trough, looking down at this tiny sleeping face of the creator God who made them. It's beyond me to explain that. But I can tell you on the authority of God's word, when you've heard the message of the gospel and you repent of your sins and look to Jesus in faith, when you believe this good news and you trust in him, he will save your soul and you're going to want to tell others about him. 
Isn't that exactly what the shepherds do? Listen, verse 17 and 18. When they had seen it, they made known abroad the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the shepherds. It's not like these humble men had suddenly earned doctoral degrees in theology. They'd not, you know, been infused with uh, rabbinical training from the Sanhedrin council or instruction from their local synagogue. Yet what they immediately do is what all followers of Jesus are called to do. They are witnesses. They testify to what they'd heard and what they'd seen and what they know. And it's, it's, it's hard to mark sort of the passage of time on this particular day. But I think it's safe to assume that at this point, the sun has risen, the community is awake and bustling with activity. And so the shepherds leave these, this, this young couple and, and the Christ child, and they go out into that community and look at what they're telling people in verse 17. They made known abroad the saying concerning this child. They didn't just say, you know, y'all, y'all ought to know. Did you hear there's like this teenage couple and a little baby and a pile of straw over in the manger? It's more than just that. It's more than just the birth of a child. They tell people, look, angels came. This is, this is what they said. He's the Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Lord. We pass ourselves on all these opportunities to tell people about Jesus because we're afraid that we'll sound silly. You know, it's certain we'll be called foolish by many. But that shouldn't stop us. Just imagine the conversation these shepherds were having as they go about the village. You know, so last night we were in the fields minding our own business and suddenly there was a blinding light from heaven and then an angel started talking to us. And then there were hundreds of thousands of angels and they started singing for us. And they pointed us to the Savior, the Messiah, the Lord, and he's over there behind that house. You'll see him because he's an infant. He's wrapped up tight and he's sleeping in a food trough. They risked more than we would. And yet they were effective witnesses because they're faithful witnesses. We're told in verse 18 that everyone who heard the message wondered at the things the shepherd told them. The word wondered there means to be astonished or to be amazed, right? How can you hear the message that the God of creation came to earth in order to save his rebellious creatures and not wonder at it, not be amazed at it? Can you do anything less than marvel Listen, the world is determined to distract you so that you will not marvel at the glory of Jesus born to save sinners. Don't allow trees and tinsel and blinking lights and wrapping paper distract you from the sense of wonder at this message. Look, our hearts should be burdened for children that are so often distracted from the the wonder and, and and. marveling at the beauty and, and glory of Christ. They're, they're fed these brief distractions in order to be drawn away from him. And then those distractions are things they're intended to outgrow. Right here in the, the city of Washington on some night in every December, they, they send out the fire trucks and the ambulances all together with their lights on and the sirens going, and they parade through the streets at nighttime in order to let children 
peek out their window or run out in their front yard and wave at Santa Claus. After all, that's what Christmas is all about. Instead, in the pages of this book, we can read with heart-stopping exhilaration of deity made flesh, the wonder of the creator becoming human, this, this breathtaking spectacle that Luke describes of an angelic army sheathing their swords in favor of song and singing glory to God in the highest. On earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And that's just the beginning of that greater story that God's telling. Because this infant is going to grow into a man and he's going to purposefully die for sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life through his death. What love is that? Andrew, would you give your son's life for mine? You know this is what God has done. The Lord of creation has done this for us. This is not a story to be distracted from. This is not a story that you outgrow. It's it's a story that brings the sense of wonder and awe and amazement and that you keep telling others and that you treasure it forever. Look Look at Mary in verse 19. Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. She kept all these things. That word kept there means to treasure or protect, to preserve or to prize. Right? We're not going to engage in Mariolatry this morning, right? The Roman Catholic uh, notion of worshiping her. However, let's also not let them in their wicked twisting of scripture, rob us from appreciation of her faithfulness. It is almost certain that she is in her early to mid-teens, away from home, not going to return for at least a few years. She doesn't have the attendance of relatives, or she's relegated to give birth to her firstborn child, and we would say less than ideal conditions. You have to wonder if she was looking around saying, well, this is not how I planned this was going to go. This smelly, filthy stable, exhausted from hours of labor, and yet she is not absorbed with self-pity. She's gripped by the wonder of this. She's treasuring, she's prizing these things in her heart. In fact, we can ask ourselves, well, how much did Mary understand? You know that song, Mary, did you know? Well, fair question. But before Jesus was born, you can go back to chapter 1 and see that Luke records for us in verse 46 through 55 a psalm, really a psalm of Mary, of which she begins, My soul does magnify the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Right? God, her Savior, that child is born and called the Savior, Christ the Lord. I think it's safe to say that Mary understood plenty, probably more than we imagine. But in our text in verse 19, we find that every word these strangers spoke and the, uh, about the angels and the glory of God and the person of her son, she collects those words and she locks them away like a treasure in her heart. It's doubtful that Mary kept the baby book of, of Jesus's, you know, first lock of hair and his first tooth. And, uh, you know, we, we've lost what, what are the first words that he spoke. Although, can you imagine? 
John tells us that Jesus is the eternal word made flesh so that God entered this world and humbled himself to the point where he learned how to speak. There's no baby book for that, but every word about her son, she treasures them in her heart. And years later, she, she opens that treasure. You can't prove this, but I am convinced that Luke, the writer of this gospel, spoke to Mary face to face and she poured out that treasure from her heart and that's how we have these words. After all, Luke tells us as he opens the gospel that he's, he's collected this information from the eyewitnesses. And I don't know who else can tell him what Mary was thinking and feeling except Mary herself. And what she experienced, she treasured. Obviously, her experience with Jesus is unique from ours, but her cause for rejoicing, she says, was in her Savior. And you can trust him too. Nothing, nothing that you do today, nothing you receive today is going to compare to the gift of opening the treasure that's kept for you in this book. It tells of Jesus' miraculous birth and his flawless life his wrath-absorbing death, his glorious resurrection. It is a priceless treasure for us to cherish. And finally, when you treasure Jesus in your heart, you are changed forever. Look at verse 20. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they heard and seen as it was told unto them. The shepherds return. They just go back. What else are they supposed to do? the excitement of the experience, the joy of the day, the, the, the wonder of the moment, it's not gonna, it couldn't last forever. And so back on the mountainside, they know the, the sheep are bleeding, their job awaits, the, their, their, their normal life is calling. And when they return, there's no more celestial army singing God's praises, right? The sun sets, the, the fields slowly become dark again, the angelic messenger's gone, the the heavenly chorus is at best a faded and distant echo in their minds. You can easily imagine them finishing their trip, assuming the positions they had prior to the angel's appearance. And now it all just seems like a dream, except they know that it wasn't. On the outside, life has returned to ordinary. On the inside, nothing is ever going to be the same after this. They return, it says, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen. Because everything that had just been told to them. The angel spoke the truth. The infant was born in Bethlehem. He had been wrapped in swaddling clothes. He, he had been set to, to sleep in a feed trough. And if all that was true, then the rest of the angelic message is true. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's great joy for all kinds of people. That child is the Savior. He is the Christ. He is the Lord. The incarnation of Jesus is, as the angels said, the hope of glory above and peace below. So when you leave here today and the luster of the season wears off, you know, essentially you do whatever it is that's the equivalent of returning to your own fields, it can be, it's, it's going to be the same old fields, but you, it doesn't have to be the same old life. 
Just like these shepherds, you've heard the message of the gospel. God has invaded your existence with his message of goodwill and peace. You can go back glorifying God and praising God in your heart. If you do not know Jesus, the Son of God, as the Savior and as Christ and as Lord, I invite you to trust him today and be changed forever. Listen, it is a very short trip from the manger to the cross. That precious child was born to die. He came to save sinners from the wrath of God. And unless you believe that to be true, unless you put your trust in him, then the birth of Jesus is nothing for you to celebrate. Your life is short and eternity is long. Believe in Jesus as Savior and Christ and Lord and be changed forever.